Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the shepherds here at Fullerton Free. And uh, if you would, just where you're at at home, if you'll just bow your heads with me. Lord, as we jump into your word, uh, we see it as living and active. And Lord, we need that this morning. We need your word to speak to our hearts, to our souls. And Lord, I would just ask that you would do just that, that this, this text would come alive to us. Lord, uh, not just that we would be hearers, but Lord, that each of us this morning would come away with a truth, with a principle, with, with something from your spirit whispering to us on what you would have us do. And Lord, may you find us doers of your word. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, uh, I want to warn you now that we're jumping into a passage that is going to meddle. It's going to get into our life a little bit and poke us. If you didn't catch it when you, you first heard those words go across, I'm going to start just by reading the first couple of verses. So James 1:19 again, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now a passage like this is actually pretty well known uh, simply because that, that whole concept of being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, that's just good advice. And so oftentimes what happens is when scripture lays out a truth that is pretty, pretty basic, then the world picks it up and we call it things like life hacks. It's just good advice. It's a proverb. It's an idea that's good to follow at any point in time. So when we get this idea that it's, you're, you're um, quick to hear, slow to speak, it's that I should listen more than I speak. And that does make sense. I know that growing up for me, there was a quote that that struck me as an introvert. I love the quote anyway, but it said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. Now, I loved that because I would like to be in quiet anyway, but, but that idea of being thought a fool just by being quiet, it was better than speaking up and removing all doubt. That in other words, our mouth will get us in trouble oftentimes. So that, that idea of being slow to speak or uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, it really does make sense. And so we pick it up and we even have those ideas that, hey, God's given you two ears and one mouth. There's an implication. You should listen twice as much as you speak. Well, yeah, he also gave us 32 teeth. So that implies we should probably eat more, at least bite, bite each other. I mean, what is that? We, we come up with that idea that it's like, we don't need some simple little thing to remember this. We know this is true, that the wisest people among us simply are quiet and they stay towards the back and they have more wisdom. And then there are others who just babble on and babble on and babble on and they just talk and talk. And you're thinking, you just need to be quiet for a while. And some of you have people in your minds and (laughs) don't go there. Um, Just focus on what it's asking us to do. But this concept, we start this passage off with a, with a truth, with a, with a concept that's about how we speak. And I need you to understand that in context of this passage, it's, it's not that it's not saying that, but it's actually implying that this is in, in relationship to the word of God. 
That what it's actually telling us is be quick to hear about the word. Be slow to speak and talking back to it. And be slow to, to ang- be angry when you encounter the word of God. And you think, well, I don't get angry at the word of God. And I would say, yeah, I think you actually do. But here's the context. And it comes, shows up in verse 18. Of his own will, he, Jesus, brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now the first fruits and how he brought us out isn't that we were created, though that's true too. It's the idea that the gospel itself is here and we are the first fruits of the gospel. That this word, the good news of the gospel has worked in us and has produced us as followers of Christ. So right off the bat, this concept then is, is so then this know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, to listen to that thing that brought you into this relationship with God. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This whole idea that what happens is is if we hear the word of God, we're quick to hear it and we're slow to speak. Like in other words, when we hear it, I find myself all the time when I hear the word, I begin to interact with it and I begin to kind of talk back to it of what I think it means and going, Lord, are you saying this or, or that can't apply to me or wow, Lord, that's a really good word that there's times that I begin to talk back and and the Lord's basically saying, listen to it, let it roll over you, be quick to hear it, slow to speak, let God finish saying what he's saying. And this idea that we would be slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's a there's a quote by um, Soren Kierkegaard that says the Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, we are obligated to act accordingly. So sometimes we'll read a passage and we'll go, I'm not quite exactly sure what that means. When in reality, we might know very well what it means. And what it means is, is that we need to change. We need to obey. We need to follow Jesus in this sense. So sometimes what the scripture asks us, we get angry about. When we talk about, when we are talking in Ephesians and we are talking about wives submit to your husbands, uh, children, you know, be submissive and obey your parents and slaves obey the, your masters. There are certain ones of us, we just get, we get angry about passages like that. When scripture starts to come into our life and asks us to let go of certain sins that we really love, we begin to justify it and push it aside. And we find this anger building up, but that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. So this concept of what happens with anger is that anger itself is is a strange thing. What is it that we get angry at? We we can talk about anger that that scripture says, be angry and sin not. And here it says, it's not likely that you're going to be able to do that. It says that your anger is more likely not to produce the righteousness of God. So the idea that you would just be angry and sin not is actually very difficult for us. But what causes anger? What gets us there? 
What causes us is that we get frustrated that things didn't go our way, that our desires and our passions have been put off, that, that we've lost something in our life. We may have lost control of certain things in our life, that expectations that we have have not been met. And any number of those things might just be an interruption of what we thought was going to happen. This happened to me yesterday. I just um, was driving down the, the road and there was a, a car coming in and I was about to change lanes and I couldn't change lanes because that car was right there and I started to feel the build up and I'm thinking why am I angry at this guy he's trying to get in my lane I'm trying to get into his lane and I'm feeling something build up in me and all it is is just that sense of what my desires were and what my expectations were were getting put off and I was losing control Anything? Well, turn your blinker on, step on the brake, let him in and go in. I mean, it wasn't that hard to do, but for just a moment that, that anger started to build up. Now, here's the thing. If you're like me, you're watching the news, you're listening to what's happening to everybody around us, and you may be feeling anger build up. You're at least seeing it surrounding you. And this idea is built on the same thing. That right now what we're watching is we feel like we're losing control. We feel like somebody else is telling us something to do that we don't want to do. And this starts to drive us mad. It makes us mad. We get a little bit angry. We know here at the church, we get letters, emails from you. And we get them from all the perspectives. It's almost like it doesn't matter much what we do. It's going to get... It's, somebody's going to get mad at it. So the idea is, you should wear a mask. No, I don't want to wear a mask. He's not wearing a mask. I don't want to wear a mask. I'm mad that I have to wear a mask. I'm mad that you're not wearing a mask. And we're all mad at each other. And I'm mad that I'm talking about masks on Sunday. This is maddening. You get the point that we get angry at those things that aren't going our way. COVID, it causes us to lose control. We're, we're not in control of the things we wanted to do. We had a plan to go visit our daughter in Tennessee in the spring, in May. We didn't get to go. We just had to cancel the trip to Israel where we, a bunch of us were going to go to Israel and study the scriptures in the Holy Land. That's awesome. We didn't get to go. I don't like that. And I don't know that it makes me angry. It surely makes me disappointed. But what happens in this anger is that we start to see certain things. We were talking even this morning, this idea that, that you guys can't be here this morning. That stirs up anger in me. When the governor first said, oh, you can only have 100 in the church. I'm thinking, oh, come on. This place is huge. We can have more than that. And I started to feel it. And then when he says, oh, you can't sing in church. And I'm like, oh, come on, buddy. This is getting crazy. And I started to feel it build up. And then my wife, Eugenie, she stops one morning and I'm letting this kind of build up inside of me and all that's going on and all that I think is wrong and this is right and that is wrong and I'm going through it. And she stops and says, can I read something to you? And so she opens up Titus chapter three and she says, let me just read this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
This concept that right off the bat, that passage just simply lays it out and says, look, God's calling us to be submissive to the rulers and the authorities that are over us. And the picture of what we're supposed to be is completely different. So this idea that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When I get angry like that, it doesn't solve anything. It just makes me angry and it paints me in a different picture. But by simply reading this passage in Titus and how it it talks about us uh, to not speak evil of anyone, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Is that what I'm doing? Nah. Well, if it's not the anger of man that produces righteousness, what is it that produces the righteousness of God? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. Because what it is, is next in Titus and is next in James as well. But we're going to look at Titus, still chapter three, the very next verse, verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The righteousness of God comes from God. That's where it comes from. That's the righteousness. And then it goes on. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, that's us, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It's such a good truth. This idea that the, the, be slow to anger because our anger is not going to produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is going to be produced by God. And he calls us to live our life that actually is more of a representation of him. It's an example of him. It's filled with gentleness and love and care and concern for those around us who are suffering. It is us being gentle and actually being peacemakers with others, not causing division and strife. That convicted me as I looked at it and I thought, oh, no, I'm, I'm not slow to anger. I let it pop up all the time. But let's keep going. As we look at this passage and, and what's, what's going on in James is the very next thing he says. Look at this. And so he says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. But in verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So right off the bat, James stops and says, look, I already know that you've got problems. I already know that you've got challenges. I'm, I'm asking you to be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger because you're a little messed up in that and in that process instead what you need to do is put away all the filthiness and the rampant wickedness that concept right there I almost brought in a couple of bags that I would hold for this next illustration that I would just stand here with two trash bags or or I almost stopped somebody who was walking their dog this morning and asked if I could have those little purple bags that they were carrying around after picking up their dogs and I would stand up here and hold it I didn't want to so I didn't I let the guy walk by but imagine if you will that I'm standing here with filthiness and vileness in my hands I carry this sin with me all the time I'm picking it up all the time and I'm holding it here just like this and then God stops and says put it away 
And I stand there and go, oh, yeah, that's really good. Could you say that again? And so here's what he does. Is he comes up and he says this. He says, uh, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. God, could you say that again? Yeah, put away that stuff and pick up with meekness the implanted word of God. Oh, so, so good. And then God stops and says, well, well, what? Are you going to put it away? Well, actually, I was thinking of memorizing this. Could you say it one more time? Because I'd, I'd like to write it down. And he's like, it's already written down. Oh, yeah, there it is. There it is. I'm supposed to put it away, put all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So good. How long? Do we stand here holding the vileness, the filthiness, the wickedness, and we don't pick it up? Because that ability to receive the implanted word, it has a precedent. The precedent is, put this down. If you don't put this down, you can't pick this up. Do you understand that? That this book, this this truth, this thing that's best for us can't even begin to do its work as long as we're hanging on to this vileness, this wickedness that's in and in our life. We need to put it down. We need to let it go. And this is what he calls us to do. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And instead, receive with meekness, with humility. The fact that I just had to admit that I have sin in my life and I keep picking it back up. We should be humbled by that. With meekness, then he says, instead, with meekness, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I love how... uh, Eugene Peterson says this or uses these verses in the the message. He says, throw all spoiled virtue and cancerous evil in the garbage and simple humility. Let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. That God would be the gardener of our life. That he would would come in and prune away the things that are not bearing fruit. That he would begin to landscape us into what we should be for a world that desperately needs to see Jesus. They don't need to see us carrying that around. They need to see us actually diving in. Holding this with meekness. And letting that implanted word in us save our souls. Verse 22, it goes on. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer, and let me, let me stop right there because I think too often we miss this principle right here. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We get this story. We get this principle that somebody hears something and doesn't do anything about it. Oh Lord, that's so good. I, we're going to have a Bible study on those verses, but we don't put it down. The idea of hearing what it is and doing it is a very simple principle. But when we don't do it, when we stay just hearers, listen to what it says right there. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, because if you are, you're deceiving yourself. From the very beginning, by not putting away the sin, it says, by being doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, if you just listen to the word. If you were there listening to this message this morning or the thousands of other messages you've heard as you've gone to church or you've been in Bible studies or you've read your devotions, you've done whatever you've done and you haven't allowed that word to penetrate you and cause you to actually do what it's asking you to do, 
You are deceiving yourself. That's what this says. It goes on to give that that classic illustration. I think most of us have heard it many times. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, who looks into this, the law of liberty and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed. There's a difference between being deceived and just simply looking at it and then walking away. You look at the passage and you go away. You don't do what it's asking you to do. What the spirit of God is interacting with you, then things start to get messed up in your life. You're deceiving yourselves. You are deceived. Hence why the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I get angry at things because they're my pleasures. They're my passions. They're the things I want. And when he says, put them down, I don't want to. Therefore, the things I get angry at are the things that are opposite of what God would get angry at. In this case, the the whole thing is the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, does that. Being no hearer forgets, but a doer acts he will be a blessed he will be blessed in his doing this idea is is amazing the idea that right off the bat, I want you to understand what's happening. That this morning, hopefully you have a Bible open. Hopefully you got one of the journals. If you don't, call us, come by the church. We will give one to you. If you need a Bible, come down and we'll get one to you. But this Bible opened up to you, is, is, it's amazing. It's a living word of God. But in addition to that, we're going to talk about that in just a second. Is I, I love somebody's quote, and I don't remember who said it, but they just said, the Bible is the only book where the author himself comes and sits with you as you read it. I love that. That even as we're reading it this morning, God sits there and says, oh, let me show you what I meant by this passage. The spirit of the living God speaks through his word, the living word of God. That the author of this book is sitting with you right now. He's not just giving words so that you would become a student of the Bible, an academic that knew what the Bible says. He doesn't care that you know what it says. He cares that you heard it and do what it says. Do what it asks you to do. This concept, uh, Albert Schweitzer, um, I've used this quote before, but he says the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do was to follow the very guidance I prayed for. That when I stop and say, Lord, what would you have me do? And then he tells me what I have to do. It's like, that's the most difficult decision I'll ever have to do is actually do that thing that I've prayed for. This Bible has truth pouring out of it. It has the ability to heal. It has the ability for salvation. It has the ability to confront painful areas of our life. It has ability to bring peace to a life that's in turmoil. It has so much inside that would transform our life. It's almost as if it's magical. And the thing is, as soon as I say that, it's like, you can't call the Bible magical. Well, the things that are magic are those things that actually defy the normal laws of science and physics. It's like a magic slippers, a fairy godmother. There's things that just change things on a supernatural level. Well, that's what the Bible does. But the supernatural level is God. The difference is, is if this is Aladdin's lamp, we don't rub it trying to get God to come out. He's already out. He's trying to get us to go in. 
He's trying to get this book to have its effect on us. And the one thing that's different is whether or not we choose to do it and obey. That's the part that simply comes in. It's not just simply a hearer only, but a doer. Somebody that hears what God is saying, that author that's right there with us. And what do we do with that? When I was in Seattle, um, I've shared before that I worked with uh, some gang leaders in the city and some of the kids that were involved in some pretty bad uh, uh, activities in, in part of the Rainier Valley. And in that sense, we started to meet some of the gang leaders and bring them together. And we would start to create jobs for them so that they would have alternatives to selling drugs or mugging people on the streets or doing hustling in any way. So what we did was we started the morning off before they would get to work. We would start off with a little what we call table talk. It was time around the Bible and we would just read a passage and talk about what it meant. And many of these young men had never even read the Bible. They'd never really spoken spent time in it. And so some of the passages were the first time they'd ever heard the truth from scripture. And I remember after weeks and weeks and weeks of these conversations that we didn't know if it was even sinking in at all, but we continued to be faithful to believe that this word would indeed seep into their souls. We would continue to read it, to study it, to discuss it, believing that God is right there with us. One morning, um, one of the young men, Ricky, stopped and said, uh, we had covered just a particular passage. And Ricky stopped and said, hey, can I just ask a question? And we're like, sure, Ricky, uh, shoot. And he says, well, look, if, uh, if I understand this right, what the Bible is saying, that it would be better if um, the girl that has my babies, if I, like, if I married her. And we're like, what did you just say? And he's like, well, I've been living with this girl and, and I've gotten her pregnant a couple of times. She's got my babies. And if this, if what I'm hearing, if this Bible is saying what it's saying, I think it's better that I actually marry her and become a dad to these babies and a husband to this woman. And we look at him and go, yeah, Ricky, that would be a really good idea. I don't know what verse he even got that out of, but the Bible itself was convicting him. God was saying, this is the area of your life that I would like to work in. There were probably 200 areas that I thought I would convict him on that I wanted him to change. I wasn't even thinking of that one, but God was. And God was sitting there with Ricky and God reached into Ricky's life and said, Ricky, I need you to give you this part of your life. And Eugenie and I got to go to his wedding. We got to be there and to celebrate that and to see his family continue to grow. And you know what? Ricky went on from there from not being a gang member anymore, but to where he got a job. He continued to care for his family and support his family. And you know, the best way to say it is I would say that he was blessed in his doing. To this day, he's still blessed in his doing. This is the power of the living word of God. Hebrews chapter four, and I think some of you have had a plan in your head. I keep alluding to it, but in Hebrews four verses 12 on for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. What is the difference between soul and the spirit? I don't know, but the Bible does. And it pierces right between the difference of those two, between joints and marrow, between the joints, that's the bone and the marrow, that's the marrow in the bone. The, the, the Bible's able to go between those spiritual things, between the physical things, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
to whom we must give an account. The Bible is living and active and it's sharp. It's going to cut to us. This concept keeps moving on. And verse um, 26 Um, We're back in James, uh, James chapter one and verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, so that you can understand what he's just said. You remember why he says you're deceived? If you are doers, um, but if you, um, but be doers, this is verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. That if you're hearers only of the word and not doing what it asks, you're deceiving yourself. And verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, we're right back there. His, this person's religion is worthless. Now, a couple of thoughts about the tongue. Um, the bridle goes on in a horse's mouth. And I don't need to say much about this, but when the bridle goes into the horse's mouth, you have to understand that what the horse is about to do is typically good things. We're gonna have the horse work and plow a field or to pull a wagon or, or take us for a ride across the country. That what, why we put a bit in the, in the horse's mouth, a bit in bridle is it actually controls the goodness of the horse. That when we talk about the tongue, the tongue is able to do some really nasty things. And if I'd ask for a show of hands of how many of you have been hurt by somebody's tongue, but I can't see you, so you can keep them down. The concept is this. This tongue can both kill and heal. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. I'm going to leave it there and to say we have today this ability that God might be convicting you of what you're doing with the tongue, of what you're saying to others, of what you've already said to somebody else. And you may need to ask forgiveness for that. You may need to take your tongue and put it in check. But God might also be calling you to reach out and encourage somebody, to bless somebody, to go check on somebody and to speak with them and talk with them and, and to bring life and healing to them. That's the bit and bridle in our mouth to push us towards good and not towards evil. Now, James goes on in chapter three to take the tongue in task pretty significantly. So I'm gonna leave that right there and not gonna go on more. We're gonna get more into the tongue in chapter three. I'll leave it there. Let's move on to verse 27. Um, the, and, and by the way, as, uh, as we jump into this, this entire book of James, James is a practical book where there's lots of commands of what we should do. He wraps up this section by doing just that. And he says, this person's religion is worthless at the tail end of 26. The one who doesn't bridle his tongue. And then in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this idea of visit, uh, the word is used in several places and it's pretty fascinating. I'm not going to go to all of the verses, but I'm going to go really quick through them. Luke 168 um, Zachari- Zacharias is talking about Jesus and it says he, Jesus has visited and redeemed his people. So this idea of visiting is to come and bring help and, and to, to care and bring welfare for the individual you're visiting. It's not just coming by and saying, Hey, you want to sit down for coffee? It's the idea that you're actually coming to bring something to that individual. So in Luke one he has visited and redeemed his people and Matthew 25, it's 
Jesus uses it when it talks about, you know, Lord, when do we see you sick? And he says, when I was sick, you came and visited me. Didn't just sit by the bed and talk, but literally brought healing and care along the way. And then in Acts 7, 23, it's talking about Moses when he was 40 years old, he goes in and he sees his Jewish brothers being oppressed and he goes to visit his brothers and he kills the Egyptian and ends up committing murder and has to run off into the wilderness. There's good visiting and there's bad visiting. He came to help, but he did the wrong thing. This concept of this visit is that idea of going into somebody's life and bringing help, care, love. In this case, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction. This idea of orphans and widows shows up in the Old Testament all over the place. Psalms. Uh, Exodus, Isaiah, Psalm 68, five says father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Um, one of my favorite passages on it is, is Job 29. And in Job 29, Job is right at that point where he's reflecting on his entire life. And as he looks at it, he says this, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light, I walked through darkness. I was in my prime. That when Job was at his peak, he's talking about these things. And he says, the almighty was yet with me when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter. I don't know what that means. And the rocks poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, young men saw me and withdrew and the aged rose and stood princes refrained from talking and they laid their hands on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard Heard, it called me blessed. Job's reflecting on all of this. When the eye saw it approved. And then he says this, because the reason all of that happened, the reason why all these good things that happened in my life was because I did what the Lord asked. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. And then I thought I shall die in my nest for it is good. Do you see what what Job is doing is the point where he's being obedient to what God calls him to. He's not getting angry or upset about the interruptions in his life and the things that aren't going his way. He's saying, God, I want to go your way. And when he goes God's way, his life is blessed. He's at his prime so much so that Satan himself goes to heaven and calls out a battle for God and Satan to talk about one man who is a doer of the word. And Job is blessed and he says, that's when I'm at my prime. And you know what he was doing? He was watching out for orphans and widows. He was doing active work. This isn't where his salvation comes from. Because of his salvation, it transforms him to be a person that illustrates Christ. That's what this passage is about. That's what this passage is talking to us and telling us to do. The last part of the the passage in James verse 27, it says, and to keep oneself self unstained from the world. 
The world doesn't need us to be more like them. They've got enough of that. The world doesn't need us to be angry. We all have enough of that. The world doesn't even need us. The world needs the perfect law, the law of liberty. The world needs to know the message that there is a truth here that will set them free, that they are still living in that deceit that is destroying them, that there is an offering to have the living God with you, walking with you, talking about this book, helping to heal and bring life to them. This perfect law of liberty. I want to close with a story that uh, when I was in Bible college, uh, we had one particular morning on a Monday morning where um, the first thing you had to do was go into the chapel and this guy by the name of John Mitchell would get up and he was like in his late eighties, nineties, and yet he would come and he would walk across the stage and he's older. And as he would walk across the stage, he'd come up to the front and he would grab the podium with both hands to kind of hold himself up. And as he would stand there, he would just teach and we just, he would have most of the Bible memorized and we were in awe of what he was doing. Well, one particular morning, it was the day after the Super Bowl, the Monday after the Super Bowl on Sunday. And uh, he comes and he walks across the stage and he grabs across the, the podium. He would usually do about a, a little over an hour talk. He gets up there and the first thing he does is he stops and he says, who won the game yesterday? And somebody over here had the answer. And then he said, uh, what was the score? Somebody over here knew the answer. Who has got the most valuable player award? And somebody up front had the answer. Who had the most interceptions? Somebody had the answer. What did the most valuable player win? And somebody had the answer. And he kept asking these questions about the football game from the day before. And everybody had the answer. And then he pivoted and he stopped and he said, if you have a friend who has just gone through an abortion and they're hurting because of their decision, where are you going to turn into in scripture? There was nobody that put their hand up. If you've got a friend who is about to commit suicide, what's the verse you give them when they're looking at ending their life? Nobody put their hand up. And if you've got somebody whose parents are Muslim and they're telling them they can no longer read the Bible or they will be cast out of their family and they're a teenager, what are you going to tell them? Where do you turn them to in scripture? He did this over and over for real life situations in our world. And then he simply said, don't you folks ever read your Bibles? He did it in about two minutes. He closed his Bible and he walked off the stage. This book that God has given us is the living, active word of God. It can transform our life if we obey it. If we obey it, not only will it transform our lives, but we then become examples of Christ. We point to him by how we live our life in love, in gentleness, in mercy, in grace. That we should not be a church that's known for all the ways we can speak out and try to defy whatever's happening in the world. We should be a church that is known for teaching the living word of God, for teaching the Bible, and then being a congregation that that obeys it, that become doers of the word. The world needs to see Christ lived out in us. They won't see him as Lord of our life until he is Lord of our life. We need to be quick to hear. We need to put away our sin. We need to look into this word and do it.
bridle our tongue, visit others, remain unstained by the world. The world needs Christ. And he's left us here to be those messengers of that very message. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. That Lord, even right now, many of us might pick up the word and it might speak to us. You may have been calling us to do something, to set down certain sins, to repent of them, to move away, to leave them behind. And at the same time, Lord, you may be calling us to righteousness. There may be people in our life that we need to visit. There are people in our circle that we need to reach out to and be a part of and love on and walk with and to to speak with a tongue that brings health and life and healing. Lord, in all of this, we need you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.